Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Just Want a Quilt, a research podcast coming out of Tulane University Law School, where we explore all kinds of things, stories about quilting, tools, field trips, maybe some famous quilters stop by, and a little bit of copyright thrown in just for fun. I'm Elizabeth Townsend Gard. I'm a law professor at Tulane University Law School, and I just want a quilt. So today we're talking to Sherry Lynn Wood. She is an artist and a quilter. She's got some uh, really cool book on improv quilting. She also does stuff on bereavement uh, quilting um, and some stuff on um, expressing war in quilts. So uh, she's just got a lot of stuff. We um, we had so much fun. Uh, we didn't get through everything, but that's what we talk about today. So Sherry Lynn Wood about her life as a quilter, a teacher, and an artist. Uh, my name is Sherry Lynn Wood, and I am in Oakland, California. Oh, awesome. Uh, very cool. Um, so tell me, do you, what's your first memory of someone sewing or quilting in your life? Uh, hmm. First memory of somebody sewing or quilting. Well, I have a first memory of quilting. Uh, sewing was much earlier to me. Well... Uh, well, I'll just tell you my first memory of quilting because it, it maybe it is my first memory of sewing. So the my first memory of sewing or quilting was a uh, vivid memory was when I was probably maybe ten or twelve years old, and I was spending week at a farm in South Hill, Virginia, with, uh, with one of my dad's co-workers or colleagues who uh, had a farm in South Hill, and he would go there on the weekends. And one summer, I went down there on the weekend with uh, my dad's uh, colleague, and he left me at the farm for the week, and I spent the week with his aunt and his mother who lived on the farm. So during the week, he worked in Richmond, Virginia, and on the weekends, he came back to the farm. And our family had visited the farm several times, and I just loved it there and wanted to um, stay for a whole week there. And so I stayed with his aunt, uh, Aunt Helen, and... Gosh, now I'm trying to get their names. Helen and uh, I can't remember the other, the, his mother's name, Florence, maybe, Florence and Helen. And they had a little sewing machine, like a little featherweight uh, singer sewing machine set up in their kit, in their dining room table. And they would have little triangles or things like that and they do chain piecing. So I remember sewing on their sewing machine and doing a little chain piecing. And then one day, so I spent the whole week there, and I just did whatever they did. And they, they actually had a florist shop, too. So we would go in the florist shop sometimes. 
you know, I helped collect eggs. I just, you know, just lived on the farm for the week. And one day at the farm, we went for in the afternoon to their neighbor's farm. And we went uh, to help quilt on a quilt at their neighbor's farm. And I don't remember the name of the neighbor or anything, but they, they actually lowered a quilting frame from the room, the ceiling of the room. Wow. And to, you know, seated level, very old school. That's really cool. And quilted. That, yeah. That is so cool. And I, yeah, it was pretty cool. And, you know, it's funny because I didn't become a quilter until I was in my 20s, late 20s. But I, I started sewing around the age of 10 or 12. I, I think around the age of 12, I started sewing. Uh, but I don't remember if this memory came before that or after I started sewing. But um, but that's uh, that was definitely my first memory of quilting. And they lowered the they lowered the frame, and I got to. I didn't. I wasn't allowed to quilt, but I got to wax the thread and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, I remember going underneath the frame too and looking at the stitches and all that. So that was my first memory. It's kind of funny that. Uh, and I don't even. I, yeah, so that was my first memory. The other memory I have of sewing, I think, was my grandmother's sewing studio. My grandmother made draperies as a professional. And she had, she lived in Indiana and I lived in North Carolina. So we didn't, or Virginia at that time. So we didn't go up there that often. But I remember at one point when I was really young, I was visiting her home and she had this huge, to me it seemed huge. I was little, this huge room that was like a porch room or something, but it had windows all around it. But she made, and, and big, tables and she made uh draperies professionally as living for for a living and i remember seeing her studio and uh her workspace and she used to send me remnants after that from her and sample books and that's what got me into sewing she used to send me fabric and things when i was little that's super cool yeah so now you're a would you call yourself a professional quilter would you put that title on yourself yeah, 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 I would say so. So I mean, I'm a professional artist, yeah. and I make quilts. Yeah, and, and so we've had yeah. these conversations of, like, what does it mean to be a professional artist or professional quilter? How is that different from, like, a hobby quilter? Well, um, I I think it's my... It's not my primary. I mean, it is like almost my primary source of income. It's like I, I do have a part-time job that supplements my income as an artist. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, I don't. I don't have a partner. I don't have a. I don't have any other way of making money. It, I mean, I could make money other ways, but I choose to do my art as my main uh, profession. Yeah. It's my profession. So I've studied. I've got an MSA in sculpture from Bard College. I've studied art, and I have been making quilts for over 30 years. And quilt making is part of my artistic creative practice. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm a professional. I mean, right. I've you know written a book. I've uh, 
but I make my living doing this, and I have structured my life to be able to do this as a as a you know as right. a full time person. Yeah, or fully dedicated to it. Yeah. So that's super interesting, and that's what we keep hearing. So, how like can you help us sort of in a generalized way help understand sort of where does your day like what is your day and sort of how much like where does what's the economics of being a professional artist like how much is it like teaching versus writing versus uh commissioned work sort of how do you juggle you know what is it what does that look like like in broad strokes um, if you if you don't mind if you do mind we can don't have yeah to. yeah no no uh well i Right now, I, I make a lot of my money teaching, um, but different, it, it, you know, it changes. I mean, one year I wrote a book, so I got a, a really good advance to write a book, and that would be the only way I could write a book because I actually have to pay bills and pay rent, and unless I have active income from creative work that I do, yeah. I don't, I really can't afford to do it, yeah. you know? Um, so sometimes, so when I had the book contract back in 2014, that year I didn't do very much teaching and I pretty much, you know, wrote the whole book and made all the quilts for the book and it was pretty full time. Yeah. And, and I do have a part-time job. I work two days a week and, um, but, but otherwise, yeah, most of my time during that, period of time was very focused on writing the book. I didn't even have a lot of free time. And then now I'm teaching a lot and actually teaching, there's not a lot of room for creativity. So I have made very few pieces in the last year and a half because all my time has been quilt uh, teaching and traveling. And I spent a couple of days just doing admin work for that yeah you know booking tickets and doing all of that and keeping track of communications and so there's a lot of non-creative work involved and uh, that that actually kind of takes away from the creative process it takes away the energy for being creative so it's a hard balance and then like one year in 2004 16, I did a four-month residency at Lecology uh, San Francisco, which is the San Francisco Dump. Very cool. And there wasn't, you know, there was a little bit of money, and there was a stipend for that, but, you know, it was just an opportunity for me to, for creative output. And, right. and then in those four months, I didn't schedule any workshops. I didn't teach at all. Um, I did my part-time job and I did my residency at Recology and had an exhibition. So if I'm you know, really focused on an exhibition or something like that, then I have to spend other other things that sometimes make money. So it's a it's a constant you know juggling, balancing to keep the income steady. And you know, ha- part-time job unfortunately seems to be necessary, at least for me to. Um, do this without too much stress, yeah. you know, because you have to have some steady income coming in. When, um, but it's a, it's a very difficult, difficult career path. Yeah. Especially if you're a single female woman working why? Um, because, in this because field. It's all, because it's all on you. There's no backup. Is that why? 
Right. There's no trust fund. There's no partner. There's um, also women in the arts make less money and get less recognition than men in the arts. And, and that's just a, you know, cross the board thing yeah. that you can see the statistics on. But yeah. artists in general and musicians in general don't make a lot of money. We're not, you know, a hard way to make a living for men as well as women. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's even harder for women. And if you don't have a partner supporting you or or paying into the income stream, yeah. it's yeah. It's not yeah. very hard to continue it. Yeah. yeah. Super hard. All right. So but, tell, tell but me teaching has been yeah. teaching has been a great source of income that has supported me very well with my um, creative practice too and, but there's also this balance yeah so tell me a little bit about yeah. sort of how that works in terms of teaching income because are you going to like quilt guilds and shows and other things where is that sort of what kind of teaching are you doing for those that are yeah, listening guilds and, con- guilds and conferences sometimes they're um, arts institutions um like a, a quilt museum or uh, exhibition place, um, or conferences like QuiltCon, right? Or regional right. conferences that guilds do, but then and also shops, different shops, sewing shops that uh, host teachers. Very interesting. So those are all places to uh, teach. Yeah. That's very cool. And you, so when you're teaching, so I want to ask you about the book, but you're using the book, like I'm trying to get sort of understand. So you wrote the book and now you're teaching and you're, are your classes based on the book? So they buy the book and like, is there additional income from the book when you teach the class? Uh, I don't require that people have my book when I teach the class. Um, but um, there are people that are, teaching workshops based on the book and those folks I do ask that they um, they that they're by I think this is copyright law from yeah. what I understand but I don't know uh-huh. but if they're going to actually that they can teach my they can teach classes based on the book yeah if they want because the book is designed as a series of scores so that you you really could do a series of workshops based yeah. on each score uh-huh. and um so there is there have been some uh shops that are teaching series now there are some guilds that are teaching as well and i don't know if the guilds with the shops if they especially if they contact me and i'm aware of it uh-huh. which i hope that they all would do this yeah if they're directly teaching from the books and I ask that every student own a copy of the book yeah. because that would be part of a copyright if they're teaching directly from the book or teaching the sports from the book. Right. Um, I, I hope that guilds are doing that too. I'm not sure if they are or not. Yeah. They might just be using, it might one or two people have the book and they might be doing sewing days, but if they're not charging incomes for it, it doesn't bother me as much. But if somebody is, charging money for a workshop and it's based on uh, this course or based on content in my book, yeah. then that's the only thing I ask is that they require every student in the workshop to have a copy of the book or to buy a copy of the book. Yeah, that makes sense. And, makes, you know, all yeah. that is, that's all very indirect income for me. I mean, yeah. 
I've got my advance, but I have to sell a lot of copies before I start getting royalties on that. But still, you but know, that, it, it does get the book out there and circulating, and so it's important for me to have really it interesting. Right. be part of the workshops. Yeah, so, yeah, that makes a and, lot of and sense. I'm, I'm okay. in, yeah, and I'm encouraging, uh, of course, I would love to have more shops do that, you know. I'm, and maybe at some point I could come into a shop later on and teach if they have enough, you know, if they build up enough interest in improvisation yeah. and um, to, to support a full class. But if not, you know, I would lo- I still love that they would be teaching the content in the book and spreading that information. And yeah. so I'm okay with that, yeah. That's really cool. But, um, but they do it on their own. So if a shop is listening, they can go to your website, which is... Uh, Sherry Lynn, Sherry Lynn, Sherry Lynn Yeah. And there you have workshops. Like what can, what's the, I don't know if I'm looking at my website. I'm looking at your website, but it's loading really slow. So they can go there and you have all the different classes that you, they have there. What's the, like, does the price of a class vary? Sort of what sort of, if they're like a bit shy, how do they know how much it will cost if they can even afford you kind of thing? Is so there, the yeah. works. Oh, so I have a set. I have a, a set fee for my workshop cost, and um, I negotiate that sometimes. And mm-hmm. especially with like multiple days, or if it's a conference. Um, but I have a basic fee, and that's paid. And then the you know, the, whoever's hosting has to determine how much they're going to charge per person and all of that to cover their expenses. Because all of the guilds might have different expenses according to how much they have to pay for space and how expensive it is and the cost of living, you know, yeah. for them because they have to lodge me and all of that when, when right. I come. Um, there's transportation costs. So they'll have to determine, you know, I'll teach up to 20 students and they'll have to determine, you know, that cost and where they want to keep it at. I think, a, you know, so in, so it can vary. Like, you know, some place, I mean, some traditional guilds try to, you know, they substitute, subsidize their workshops. So they might offer it to their members for $50 and I, you know, Anyways, and then they, there might be other folks that just want to break even and it might be 110 or 120 or mm-hmm. 140. And then there's certain places, you know, if they want to make a profit, then they might charge like a shop or something might charge 250. And, you know, that's like, I think at Quilt Kind of workshops, I don't know, around 175 or. Yeah. Yeah, so it just can vary, and but my fee is the same. Yeah, interesting. All right, so yeah. we, so I have have a ridiculous life right now. Like you have, it is the most ridiculous. So one of the things is I'm going to be at QuiltCon. I'm going to do two lectures and a workshop. So um, which is fun and awesome, um, and really out of my on copyright. So we're doing copyright and IP lectures, and then. Um, a workshop. So tell me about your experience at QuiltCon because I'm trying to think through sort of what it is that I've gotten myself into. Oh, QuiltCon's great. I, I love QuiltCon. I think they, it's so well run. I'm so impressed by how organized they are and, 
you know, all that they have to offer. And it's, and it's a nonprofit and they put on this huge show every year and it allows people, I mean, it's amazing national quilt guild meeting basically. And you get to see all the folks that you've been watching on Instagram and you get to see the quilts in real life and the quality of the quilts are great. Um, it's just, you know, in the workshops, I mean, I've, I've teach, I've taught every, every world. Well, I didn't teach last year. I just gave a lecture last year, but I've been to every quilt con and, um, I think the workshops are good and there's such a variety. I, I mean, I just have positive things to say and it's really fun. It's, it's really cool. It's really fun to go and see and meet people that you're in touch with, uh, digitally, you know, yeah. And now you, you know, if you go regularly, uh, I mean, if you, I'm sure you'll, you'll meet people that you know online or yeah. you, you probably meet me yeah, right. and totally. you'll meet uh, other folks uh-huh. and that you've been interviewed or that, that you follow. And that's really always fun. And then after you've gone a couple of times, though, you keep seeing these folks every time and you, you know, your friendship becomes more real. Yeah. And it's, fun to just see people once a year so it's I think it's really good and I think they do a great job the volunteers are fantastic I think they have a really good range of uh workshops that they offer in like all these different areas uh that are popular in for modern quilters yeah and um and so it's, it's pretty good. I think they do. And they pay their teachers well. I know. And right? I, I think that's a big difference from some of the for-profit quilt, national quilt exhibits that happen throughout the year. And I don't actually have not taught at some of those big things like quilt market and quilt festival and stuff because they don't, I don't think they pay their teachers enough Interesting. for it to be worth my time to go and do that yeah but um you know i don't know for sure but that's kind of what i've heard and and so but quilt not like that i think they really respect uh the work of their members yeah. and they respect the profession uh, they respect the quilt the makers that are in it as a profession as teachers and or even if they're not professional you know even if this is just kind of a part-time hobby but they are good teachers you know they respect them and pay them uh that a a wage that's fair yeah for their work and um so i think i just have all good things to say about what con and the organizers and i'm going to be the keynote speaker and featured exhibit in nashville oh that's so cool I love that's it. That's the reason I'm saying all this. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I so cool. Excited. What is your what do you and what honored. is the, that is so awesome. Um what's the special exhibit on? It'll be my work, you know, it'll be a kind of a survey of my work. Um and hopefully we'll I'll have some of my sculpture there too as well. So that's cool. connected to the quilting. That is so cool. Wow, that's so awesome. So I'll have I'm trying to get quilts from, you know, really old quilts that some of the work that people might not be familiar or have ever seen. 
uh, online before, as well as current stuff as maybe at Tropical News things. Now, as an artist, do you keep your quilts? So, like, because you're going to be exhibiting them, like, do you give away quilts or do you keep them because you know that you'll need them for books and exhibits and things like that? Well, I make quilts for family and things at different times and stuff, but um, I also make work quilts for, you know, for sale. So if I sell them, they're they're out in the world, and if I need to um, borrow them back, you know, I, I can ask the owners if they'll loan them for a show. Yeah. And then some of the things, like I probably will have a quilt that I made for my father out of my grandmother's clothes, uh-huh. so I'll just ask for it back to put in a show. That's really cool. You know, I'll ask my, So, yeah. you know, there's definitely, I make quilts to give to people, too. Yeah. Um, I also make quilts that I have that are available for sale or commissions. Now, there may part- be a commission or so that I'll ask that for a show, and sometimes they'll loan them. It just depends. So do you have a contract? Is it in the contract? Do you just, like, is that part of the contract that you may ask for it back for a show, or is it just sort of understood? Um, I have had in the past had, had contracts with that in them um, about, you know, that things would be available for the show. Mm-hmm. I haven't done a lot of selling lately, though. I haven't been trying to sell work, so it hasn't been a current thing. But I think some of my old work I do have, I don't, like, I don't even know where some of that is so now. Like, I have, you know, you might have a contract, but if you don't stay in touch with the people that own your work, it might be hard to track them down and find the piece, right? Yeah, really so. interesting. Uh, I mean, right. Especially if you've been doing it for like 30 years, it's like <laughs> it's easy to think about who you sold totally something to five yeah. years ago. But when you think back 30 years, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, who? Right? I can't even remember the names of some of the people that bought my early work. That's so funny. I'll have to dig through some of my archives to even find some of these quilts to see if I can get them back. Very interesting. I want, I want to ask you about a couple of more things because I know we're already at 26 minutes. We might go just over just a bit. But um, I have to ask you about a couple more things if that's cool. Um, okay. Okay. Prayer Banners. The Prayer Banners Workshop or the, oh, yeah. the project. Tell uh-huh. me about that. Yeah, that's great. This is perfect because you're calling me on Memorial Day. Right. I was thinking of actually pulling that out and working on it a little bit today. I haven't worked on it for a while. But that was started right after my mom died in 2004. Uh, she died Christmas Eve 2004, and the Iraq War had just started, like, in March 2004. Is that right? Yeah. I think so. Okay. I don't know if I have the dates right. And at the time, you know, it was pretty upsetting to think about being in a war, and I connected you know, my mom's death to, I felt connected to other people over the holidays that were feeling loss from death, the death of a loved one. Yeah. And particularly people that were losing loved ones in the war. And yeah. I think at that time, there were only like maybe under 800 soldiers who had died. Um, so it was still pretty new. Um, the war was still, you know, had just started. And I was, I don't know if you know the Kentucky Coffin Quilt. Are you aware of that quilt? No, I don't know that quilt? one. Tell me about that. Okay, if you if you Google Kentucky Coffin Quilt, you'll, okay. it'll come right out. And I, I don't 
have the specifics right now of who made it and exactly what day it was made. I think it was in the late 18-something, like maybe 1885. It's kind of Victorian expansion. And this woman was moving from the east, and I guess she got to Kentucky, or she moved from Kentucky forward, or I think she was moving from the east and moved to Kentucky. And she had to leave some children who had died behind wherever she was the east. And she made this cough, and she made this quilt that had Lemoyne stars, but around the edges there was a, an applique fence, and in the center there was like a plot, like a little plot with a path. And around the plot were the Lemoyne stars. And she had a little coffin of her children in the plot there of her family members. So, like, because she couldn't stay near the burial ground of her family members, she kind of made a quilt I of the burial it. ground yeah. and took it with her. Yeah. Yeah, Can yeah. So it's like it? brown and then she it's got, it. yeah, stars and it's got like a little, it's like a little garden. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's got, oh, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, I'll post and the it, other thing she would do is she would, yeah, it's a, an incredible quilt, an incredible story, and she would unsew when somebody died. She'd unsew the, their coffin on the outside of the fence and sew it into the inside of the fence. I think that's part of the story of that quilt too. And anyways, it's just a very moving quilt. And when my mom died, I don't know, for some reason, I thought of that quilt. And I thought about the soldiers dying. And I felt that connection of loss through this idea, this Buddhist idea of um, tongling, where you breathe in your suffering and breathe out. Where you breathe out the suffering and you feel connected to the suffering of others through your breath um, with your own suffering. And so I wanted to do that with the stitching as well. It's kind of a also this way you can stitch in a meditation that can be like a meditation on loss and connecting to other people so that you're not alone in your loss. Yeah. And so I started stitching the names of these soldiers who died on these coffins, kind of inspired by that Kentucky coffin quilt. And I made it, I used the blankets, it's the fields. And the first uh, quilt says, uh, repent. But you can't really read the, and repent just means to change, to go in a new direction. And it wasn't about the soldiers repenting, of course, but as the country of repenting from war, changing internal, away from war. And uh, was what I had in mind is, is that, uh, thing And also, you know, I felt that in myself when my mom died, you know, how to repent and how to change, you know, the change that I had to make in my own life after my mom died. <laughs> yeah. So those coffins actually spell out the word repent, but it's so hard to see. You can see it from a distance, maybe, if you know it's there. It's very subtle, but it's there. And um, the first one is the repent banner. And the second one that I'm still working on is the mercy banner. So it cool. says the word mercy. And that word came to me after hearing about um, the torture of soldiers in, uh, during the Iraq War, our t- torture of so- soldiers after those photos came out. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, no, we need mercy. 
We need to have mercy. We need to ask for mercy as a country. Yeah. And um, and and just you know, as human beings, as a as a world too, you know, in terms of what we do to others, and individually, we need to ask for mercy. And so um, that was, and it's a way of reclaiming those words as well. Um, uh, so that so I start thirsty banner, and I'm still working on that one. And then I want to do one. There's it's conceived as a three-part piece, but I haven't even started on the third banner, which would say glory, which would be a red banner with white coffins. So the first one's a blue banner with red coffins, and the next one is a white banner with uh, blue coffins. <laughs> and then I have this one red blanket and I want to do the, the, the glory banner. I want to have a red blanket. It's like a really dark red with white coffins. And I also include names of Iraqi people, Iraqi civilians who died in the war along with um, American soldiers and and allied force soldiers that died in the war. And people get to choose, and I do it in community settings. So it's not just me sewing the coffins. I've had, oh goodness, probably a thousand people at least to sew coffins for the side of the years. So it's an ongoing project. Very cool. And it's perfect for Memorial Day, actually, to totally. bring it out and work on it on Absolutely. Memorial Day. That's really awesome. All right, a couple more. Yeah, I hope to have. Yeah. Have one of those at Quilt Con. That would be I awesome. I hope I have one of those on exhibit at Quilt Con. That would be yeah. amazing. Um, a couple more questions. One is your passage quilting. Can we talk a little bit about that and also about your sort of reuse? You you do a lot of reuse of materials, which is kind of related to uh-huh. passage quilting. Uh-huh. Those two things are very related. Um, the passage quilting I started around 2001. 2002, right after uh, 9-11, and it started by, you know, somebody coming into the farmer's market and saying, you know, I have these clothes from my grandmother that I'd like to have made into a quilt, and so I did that, and it was so meaningful, and I worked with the architecture of the clothing, and not not as much in the first two, I just read for her, and but in the third one, I did that, and then I taught at Penland right after 9-11. And I did a workshop, a two-month workshop that started, like, the Saturday after 9-11 uh, for two months called Quilting and Narrative. And so we worked with, a lot with clothing and the group of students. Uh, we worked with the poet Eileen Miles came and did a mini-workshop with us. So we connected language and narrative and story and, and poetry and writing with quilting. And... Um, we we looked a lot about we you know we used clothing that had meaning and memory, and so my ideas around the passage quilting kind of evolved out of that. And the main thing that I think of that as well is it's not just about making a memorial quilt, but the process of making it is a healing process. It's a bereavement yeah. process, process that that you know reflects the process of grief and bereavement bereavement, like tearing up the clothes, um, acknowledging the loss uh, that way. And I use an improvisational process so that we're not just cutting the clothes into little squares and and doing a fixed pattern thing, but a a flexible pattern where you don't really know how it's going to turn out. 
And that really reflects how we have to change, shift our patterns since we have a major loss of somebody we love in our life. All the patterns, all the routines start to shift, and it's, it's very disorienting. So doing that in a quilt is creates a lot of trust in just being present to the moment and not having to have all of the patterns fixed and seeing that it works out okay. So it becomes a very reassuring process um, that will mirror that in life as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, you have to trust that, you know, your patterns, your new patterns will start to evolve and it will be okay. Whatever works, whatever happens now in this new relationship you have with this person who's died you know, it's a new relationship. And so, and also, you know, the patterns, the families change, all the systems, the patterns in the system change. So um, that doing that in a quilt in an embodied way is, you know, reassuring. And then there's the meditation of the stitching and the memory and the stories. And then it's sharing the quilt again, allows people to remember the life and not just death. I've done a lot of these with people who've had tragic losses, like, uh, losses of children, children and adults who've taken their own lives, um, murders even. I mean, so a lot of times people, like in a suicide, they don't really know how to talk about it with their friends and family. They feel so awkward around it because of the way the person died that it's hard to even remember their lives. But once they have the quilt, the quilt becomes a vehicle to remember their lives. You say, oh, yeah. look, I remember when you know, he did this or that, or, you know, oh, yeah, you know, because I might have a T-shirt from that part of the life or, you know, so uh, it becomes, you know, this new way of uh, remembering the life of the person instead of just the way that they died, which can happen sometimes when it's a tragic loss. Super interesting. And so it's very healing in so many different ways. And, of yeah. course, you can just wrap up in it when it's done and, and I've continued to do that. I'm actually working on one today in my studio for somebody. And the most recent project I did was with a woman whose fiancé died in the ghost ship fire in Oakland uh, last, uh, I guess it was a year ago, November. Wow. And um, so it continues to be, I, I do it as commission, I do it as collaboration. I do it through workshops with people and I also do it as um consultation so that I get people started on their own so people can do it even if they've never made a quilt they can enter in on the process any part of the process or they can have me do this overwhelming sense of that being exposed to that every day for four months and you get immersed in it and so it's just another system so family system human systems family systems and here is the trash system or the debris waste stream system of the whole city on the yeah. metropolis right yeah and um and so you see that cultural uh the cultural debris coming in and anyway so they're very connected but um working more less personally or focused on an individual story and more on uh, cultural identity and communal identities through the materials uh, in the dump. And then I also focused on that residency. Another part of that was about uh, this idea of making do, which I think of 
more in terms of, and I know that can be a very negative connotation when you don't have enough, you have to make do. Yeah. Uh, but I was looking at it, uh, kind of flipping it and saying, you know, what we, what we have scarce in our life now is that the simplicity of choice is scarce for us. We're yeah. overwhelmed by too many choices and That's too really many nice. options. Yep. And sense. so by looking at that as the scarcity, we can start to say how, you know, if we set limits for ourselves, then this is this becomes a source of abundance. Limits can actually become a source of abundance. Yeah. It can allow us to flow. It can allow us to regenerate and to create new patterns and new systems for that are more sustainable than what we have now. And so that work is all about that and that's working cool. with, uh, and, and that fits into improvisational processes and practices as yeah. well, which hooks back into the book, the improv handbook for modern quilters is, you know, a very basic starting point for people to start to learn about flexible patterning and how that, and you know, through their love of patchwork and, and creating quilts, they can start to think about, you know, how the patterns go together when they come right out of me. How do I learn about pattern? How do I work with pattern in a way that's unique to the way I think? And, and how do I deal with things that don't have to be planned and fixed? And, and you know, what are my blocks to that? Because I think we have to live in a more flexible world these days. So patterns are all, uh, they're not fixed anymore like they used to be more fixed. And I think we go in and out of time periods that are where we need more flexibility and more fixed yeah. situations. Totally. Like early frontier, patterns were very flexible. And then as things became communicated and it became media and just in terms of quilt making patterns became more fixed right and yeah. copyrighted and, right. and uh owned in certain ways and not owned in certain ways but you know um so you know, i could go on and on you know we could talk about how do you you know the difference between copywriting a fixed a fixed thing and a flexible thing right you know, is That's that so even true. possible to have copyright? That's uh, right. It's in the definition. Stuff. I don't know. Right? That's exactly it. So copyright is a uh, something that's fixed in a tangible medium of expression, at least in the U.S. That's part of the definition. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So fixation oh, is. Right. Yeah. So it's all about fixation and fixing it and then having being able to identify that property as somebody's property. It's a property system, right? It's an economic system. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you're right on with that. That's really interesting. Super interesting. So, well, right. you're so yeah. cool. I have like a thousand more questions, but we're already at 45 minutes. I would love for you to come back and chat more, oh. and, and I would love to talk to you about, as we get closer to um, – to QuiltCon about your show and sort of the process of, of getting that show up and running. That would be just so cool. Um, I just, I'm, you're just really cool. Your stuff is really cool. Um, I'm going to plug your, your book for you. So the Improv Handbook for Modern Quilters. And I like the subtitle, A Guide for Creating, Quilting, and Living Courageously. Um, it sounds like a great book. Um, it really does. So um, this has been 
insanely awesome. I want to chat more. So um, we got to play more. You're uh-huh. really cool. So Yeah, well, I'd love to come back and do it again. Awesome. We'll cover some up more territory. Oh, I have to ask you one different territory. Definitely. There's well, so much more. Thank you, for... I do have to ask you one question before you leave because I cannot figure out what this is, which is your mantratrailer.com. What is that? Oh, my gosh. That's a whole other project. <laughs> Again, about patterns and patterns of language uh-huh. and repetition and variation. So I took this trailer, this 50s bread box trailer cross country for five months and took it to communities all over the, the United States from east to south and east and south to west. And um, it was like a little traveling project the outside with the signboard where I could put people's mantras in letters on the outside and then inside was a meditation space where people were encouraged to come in, connect with their innermost self and say whatever mantra they wanted to say or sing or chant their mantra out loud. And it didn't have to be a traditional mantra or prayer, although some of them were. Yeah. And anyway, so the archive is online at mantratrailer.com. You yeah. can go and listen to different mantras from all over the place. And, it's great. And, you know, it's this idea of repeating it. And then sometimes we repeat out loud the meaning shift and the tongue shift or the, yeah. the subtle shift of understanding. And you can hear that in the often in the thing. Some of them are very inspiring. Um, so I definitely would recommend people going to to, to visit them, that awesome. website and the inside was beautifully quilted gold silk but i never took pictures of the inside yeah i was looking for pictures only of the inside for people to experience oh that's interesting yeah, no, you had to have, you had to have experienced it to, to see that it's that's only so in the memories of the people and so what did you yeah. do with the trailer once you were done with the project? Do you still have the trailer? Well, it is it is now in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. An artist friend of mine who gave me the trailer originally now has it, and it's part of his, his creative space there. That's so. so great. Well, I love it. You are such an artist. Yeah. You have so much. Um, I think that, you know, thoughtful thinking about society makes it's, it, it's so part of, like, I just really like what you're thinking about and, and um, how you're expressing it. It's so cool. Um, let's chat again. Hold on um, before we get off. I'm going to turn off the recording, but I just hold on real quick. Okay. So this is Elizabeth Townsend Guard. You've been listening to Just Want a Quilt, a research podcast coming out of Tulane University Law School. We want to hear from you. Join our army, our quilting army. Go to our Facebook page. Suggest people to be interviewed. Suggest yourself to be interviewed. We are excited to hear from you. But most importantly, I hope you get a chance to quote today.